HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host, and uh, we're going to introduce our guests. We'll be talking about women and craft malls. Let's start with Jesse. Hi, I'm Jesse Busser, the executive director of the Craft Monsters Guild, and I'm in Bozeman, Montana today. <laughs> All right, welcome. Hey, Hillary. Hi, I'm Hillary Burrill. I'm here from Rabbit Hill Farms and Malt House, and I am in Shiloh, New Jersey today. All right, welcome. Hey, Heather. Hey, Jimmy. I'm Kether Sharf Gray. I'm from Mainstem Malt, currently located in Bellingham, Washington. That's great. I'm so happy to have you guys on. So, Jesse, um, tell us about your role with the Craft Monsters Guild, because I've, I've got to know you more this year uh, through some of your work with the North American Guild of Beer Writers and that really awesome uh, the Craft Malt conference that, that you worked on this winter. Yes, that was a great conference. Um, so I am the executive director and I would say the best way to describe my job is I herd cats and spin plates at the same time. <laughs> Basically <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing a little bit of everything and I'm managing all the various moving parts of the guild. Um, everything from administrative stuff to, uh, you know, board of directors, helping them out, uh, with, you know, initiatives and programs that they want to do, um, and managing the educational programs and the events and, um, just keeping things rolling basically. Yeah. Well, I think one reason I wanted to do this show, we're definitely going to be doing a couple other craft malt shows this summer with you and with, uh, Emily at Radcraft Beer, but you know, all, all the talk about equity and, and women in beer, um, this is one part of the industry where, where I see a lot of women uh, in positions of leadership and th that I've worked with for a long time. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about what, what, what the Guild is, is doing um, in that regard, and just that there's so many great women leaders in, in your Guild. Yeah, so the really great thing about the Craft Monsters Guild is it really was, you know, and it's the craft malt industry in general, and then also just the guild itself has been something that was spearheaded from by women from the get go. Um, yes, there were men involved too, and we appreciate them just as much. But um, Andrea Stanley is kind of, I guess, I would she's she's kind of the legend in the industry that kind of really got things going. That had the initiative to start one of the first craft malt houses in the country, and then also with seven other maltsters came together and informed the guild in 2013. 
and she served as our first board president. Um, you also may be familiar with kind of some of the work that she's done with um, other women like Cassie Poirier, uh, formerly of Brees, uh, and uh, Lindsay Barr from Draft Lab. They uh, developed a lexicon for malt taste and aroma and the hot steep method that we use for sensory today. So there's a lot of really cool things that women have have started. Um, also, our craft malt conference that you you just mentioned earlier that we, you love so much. Um, that actually came out of an event idea that uh, Andrea Stanley started called Farmer Brewer Winter Weekend that was held at Hartwick College back in the day. It was one of the first experiences that brewers and distillers could go to and connect with farmers and maltsters and kind of, you know, bridge that divide between agriculture and beer. Definitely. This is a good starting point because for me, Andrea Stanley at Valley Malt, she was the first craft maltster that I knew in the Northeast and I still consider now that the, the breweries that work with her or the breweries that are interested in working with, with craft malt, I think, are putting out the, the best beer. Um, let's go through the other guests and, and just talk about how important craft malt is to, to our industry. Um, let's go to Hillary. And I know that you, your family has a you, – you're like agriculture and farming, so you've got a, a, a very broad perspective on this industry. Yeah. Um, so our farm uh, called Rabbit Hill Farms is in southern New Jersey. And uh, my brother and I own and, and operate the farm, which is a 585 acre farm um, with kind of a diverse list of crops. Uh, but the thing that's been the most fun and the most exciting for us in the last few years has been building out the malt house um, on the property. And so we grow all of our own grains and then we um, floor malt all of those grains ourselves here as well um, to work with our local brewers who are interested in, in those local grains. And I would say that one of the reasons that we felt so comfortable stepping into craft malting was it was an incredibly welcoming community. And that was in part due to um, you know, Andrea's efforts and seeing leadership um, at, at the guild and even pre-guild leadership within the community from all different types of people, um, but also Twyla Souls from Grouse Malt House. Um, you know, she was involved in forming up the guild as well. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't just one person. It was a really diverse group of people who came together to form the guild and who were interested in craft malt from the beginning. Wow, that's great. And then I want to make sure we, we all give shout outs to some of the beers that are using our malts or that we're drinking at this moment. I'm going to I'm give a shout out to Valley Malt. Andrea, she turned me on to so many great New England breweries. Um, I, I'm just going to generally say Wormtown out of Massachusetts and Kent Falls um, are just two, two breweries I know that use a lot of her malt. Um, Kather, uh, let's, let's get your perspective on this, too, as we get started. Yeah, so I just got into Craft Malt a couple years ago. I just actually yesterday had my two-year anniversary at Main Stem Malt. And uh, when I saw the position come open, I remember thinking to myself, okay, even though you only have 70% of the qualifications, if you were a man, you would probably apply for this job. And so I was like, okay, I have to do that. And then it's actually, it's it was uh, surprising to me and very rewarding to me that there were so many badass people in this organization. So I'm working with Twyla Souls and Andrea. Um, oh, I can't forget. I can't remember her last name, but on, uh, on the, in the technical working group, which is, uh, the, uh, along with Bruce French, uh, the, or the working group that is a, uh, subcategory of the craft maltsters guild that's working on creating the framework and language to support all maltsters and being able to meet basic specifications yeah let's just go back back through the initiative that you guys have i'd like to just obviously i'm struggling with this because you know i am a man and sometimes it feels funny to talk about it but i i do feel that like i've learned a lot when i'm, I'm thinking about history of of women in in the industry and you know when i was a kid title nine had just come in and it it meant that there would be equal money um, for, for sports for girls and women as well as for boys and men. And I feel like just the, the generation after me, 
I saw how much that had made a difference uh, in schools and 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 colleges, um, and and just the the values that that were there. You know, the the old days it would have been the the attitudes of frats were were very male oriented, hazing. A lot of these other rituals were from a male dominated world, and I I really feel like uh, you know my daughter. I'm I'm getting personal, but my daughter's 19 and, and a first year at college, and I feel like you know two generations later. The whole world has changed, and, and, and at least in higher ed, where there's more women on campus than men, and uh, a lot of the values are, you know, are, are definitely more e- equitable. Um, so I feel like the world has changed. I just, I just, uh, and I like looking at craft malt the spotlight of that because I feel like it, it's nice to see that there is, there are leaders that represent this new world. I don't know if anyone wants to go with that because I, I feel like that I've been struggling with it. Uh, and I just want to talk a little bit more about it, how you guys perceive the world. I think I'll jump in. Um, this is Hillary. I think the thing that is hard for me is that, yes, I have seen progress over my lifetime. I've seen progress over the last 15 years since I started farming with my dad in the way that I'm perceived just in the agricultural community. Um, but it's something that's so pervasive through society. And I even have to check myself on it sometimes about who, who I make assumptions about or who I think I need to speak with when I walk into a brewery, um, or a store or anywhere. So I don't think that the, the, this conversation is specific to craft beer only. I think there was just a flashpoint in craft beer that, is causing us to to think about it more acutely than mm-hmm. we normally would. I'd agree with that. Definitely. Yeah, those those issues are pervasive throughout agriculture as well. I mean, I I worked in agriculture for over a decade. I worked with a lot of ranches um before I ever came to work with the guild and um you don't know how many times I got asked, you know, like, oh, you're how old and you're not married yet and you don't have any children? You know, it's like a woman shouldn't be single and working in a career. And, you know, it, it was strange to to men to counter that and they didn't understand it. And it's like certain cultures, certain groups of people still don't have it move past those things, even though we see it in a greater whole across the world, you know, we're in our own communities. We see that things have improved somewhat, but it's, it's, it's been inches, not feet. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you guys are good. You're the best of the best. And I'm really happy to have you guys here with me. Let's just go back to malt because it, it's still something that's just, is very complicated to me. Um, sure. I can't believe that craft malt was only just getting started 10 years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, how important that is because before craft malt, it's like, how could you differentiate between, you know, I mean, it's one of the top ingredients in beer, right? Right, right. Yeah, it is. You can only it's, it's water. <laughs> well, yes, water is the top ingredient in beer. Malt is the foundation of beer though. It is what gives beer its soul and it all in the foundation of its flavor. Um, so it is vital. And yeah, before craft malt came around, brewers' only option was to buy from larger scale malsters that, you know, were really catering mostly to to the the large scale beer producers. So um it was harder to find those, you know, interesting, unique specialty malts that we we've grown to love and appreciate today. Um craft malt came along and really kind of kicked the door open and um really, I think, pushed the malt industry to start being more innovative again and thinking outside the box and starting to do new things. <clears throat> so craft malsters really have infused, you know, a lot of, of uh, creativity and and uh, just new life into the world of malt. And I feel like malt is starting to have a moment, if you know what I mean. That's a great, that's a great line. Um, let's just talk about some of the, the basics of, of what you're doing when, when, you know, you're in, the, you're as a farmer, uh, Hillary, um, s- spring versus winter wheat, you know, when you plant them, when you harvest them, 
uh, what, what the risks are, one versus the other? So um, in our kind of, at our latitude, in our climate, I can plant both spring and winter crops, though the winter crops do much better for me. And, and I, so I think that that's something that's really unique about working with small scale malt houses is that you're getting exposed to a whole new set of varieties of barley and wheat and all of the different grains because they're going to choose to use the varieties that work the best in their local climate. So for us, um, we're planting our two-row barley in October, um, and we just harvested ours about two weeks ago. Um, that would be mid-June. Our spring barley we planted in the very beginning of March, and it's looking like we'll probably be harvesting that within the next week um, or two. Um, we do mostly winter wheat here uh, because it's we've been growing winter wheat for so long and it's really well adapted to our climate. Um, so we haven't tried any spring wheat, um, but we do do some oats and some spelt and some rye on our farm as well. So really just picking the varieties that have worked the best for us over the years. Um, we're, we're growing a few different varieties every year so that we can trial new things and see if one really impresses us agronomically or in the malt house. And then, uh, working with our brewers to find out if it's something that they are interested in using. Was your farm growing other grains as well before this, or, or did you just get into it for malt? So we mostly, um, we did grow wheat and soybeans before we ever started the malt house. Uh, we were a vegetable farm before we started the malt house, and now the malt house fills our, our vegetable kind of category of that, like higher intensity management. Um, kind of crop. So we always grew grains, but we were growing them to different specifications. So we were just growing them for commodity level um, sales. They would go to larger grain mills or they might end up at a, a flour mill, but we didn't really touch it once it left to our farm. Um, so growing for the malt house has been really rewarding because we can follow that grain, you know, because half of the process happens at our own place. So we're doing the malting here on site, but we can find the end product. You know, we know what beers our malt is in. We know what spirits our grains are in, and we can find those things out in the wild. And, and I think that's one of the things that's always been the most rewarding to me um, in farming is to be able to find the end product and that end consumer and communicate with them about what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, so we've always grown grains, but um, we do manage them differently now that we're trying to grow something for, for, for malting. Uh, it's a much tighter set of specifications for us to make sure that those grains can become malt. Are there a couple uh, nearby breweries to you that, that are, use your malt, or do you send them farther, farther afield? So we're working mostly um, with brewers and distillers in New Jersey. Um, and the closest person that we work with really regularly would be Tonewood Brewing, which is in Oakland, which is right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and they, they have our wheat malt in one of their regular um, paleo offerings. Um, but we work with brewers all around New Jersey. We'd be happy to send stuff further afield if we needed to, but so far, New Jersey has been purchasing up everything that we can make. Wow. You know, and do you feel like there's a natural connection between um, growing uh, barley for malt and just a healthy grains agricultural system in your region? And I've met some people like the River Valley Community Grains, for example, in New Jersey. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to make sure that you're growing a healthy crop all the way through, or you're not going to get malt quality grains. So we, we pay very close attention to our crop rotation. We pay really close attention to, um, you know, all of the agronomics from the time that we plant um, until we harvest. Um, and I think that I said before we were 
previously growing vegetables. And I think that vegetables are a really high intensity crop. And so our style of farming really lent itself to growing those malting grains because we could commit ourselves to really close scouting of our crops and being really attentive to the needs um, of of our crops and and what we needed to do on the farm to make sure that we were going to get those good quality malting grains at the end. Yeah. And, w- and what about weather? Um, you know, where I am up, up here in New York area, it's been really hot. You know, there's heat wave out the Pacific Northwest. How does weather impact um, your barley and, and, and grains from malt? Sure. I mean, that's the thing we absolutely can't control. Um, and it is the most stressful part of, of growing any crop is dealing with the weather that you get in any given year. Um, you know, here in, in our region, we had a really dry stretch leading up to Memorial Day, um, where it didn't rain for three or four weeks. And that was the time during which all of our grains were filling. So that means if we had not had the ability to water our crops at that time, we would have ended up with really thin barley, which wouldn't have performed well in the malt house. And then even if we could have made good malt out of it, I don't know if brewers would have wanted it because uh, that plumpness would have affected their milling capabilities. So for us, um, we were watching that. We were watching the crop's needs and we decided to water our barley, um, which is not something that we normally have to do. You know, in the spring, we usually have ample rain. We're usually fighting against the rain and wishing that it would stop so that we could... Uh <laughs> so that we were getting ready to harvest. Uh, but it was the opposite this year. So, you know, every year is different. Um, and we just have to kind of take our best stab at it. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about that. I, I plan to farm for my whole career. Um, but that pretty much means that I'll only have maybe 40 chances to turn out a great crop of barley. And since I can only do like one a year, so it's high stakes. Yeah, you got, you got a lot on the line, I'm sure. Wow, sure. it's 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 still quite amazing. Um, and then, Keller, out there where you are in Washington, just tell us a little bit about the the agriculture and the climate, and what you guys are up against. Yeah, so this year has definitely been. A wild one. Uh, We started the year off with very little rain, uh, which means that all the things that Hillary just described are remain true for the Pacific Northwest as well. The added complication is that all of the grain that we grow is dry land. So we do not irrigate our farms or we um, we work specifically with farmers who are not irrigating. Um, So it's a real cross your fingers, grit your teeth, hope that it comes out okay situation. Um, And then, yeah, we also just had a heat wave and the parts of the state that we harvest our grain in are uh, the parts of the state that are still experiencing the heat wave. uh, I live in Bellingham and we've subsided and we're down in the 80s and it's a totally acceptable temperature, but on the east side of the state, it's still up in the hundreds and, um, and we're still a month out from harvest. So it's definitely a risk. And as climate changes, um, yeah, it's a, it's interesting to consider drought tolerant grains. It's interesting to consider, um, the options that we have to be growing quality grain in this scenario. Um, so I will just continue to keep my eyes on the weather station. I'll tell you, I, I've been in, in a New York barley field where they were rushing t- to get the combine going when, as the clouds were coming in, but they didn't, they, the combine was had was missing a piece or something. Uh, I saw the stress on, on those farmers. Um, right. That's the other detail is that on the other end, so we're all praying for rain and we're all crossing our fingers and we're all super hopeful. And if in uh, 30 days we get the rain that we were hoping for uh, today, we'll be in a situation that we potentially have um, sprout damaged grain in the field, which means that we can't ultimately melt it. 
Um, so yeah, it's just this huge balance. We're working with our farmers. We're, and also it's like a total, um, it's a total gamble. There's not a lot that you can do about the weather. And especially when, um, we're actively growing dryland grain. Um, so it, yeah, it's on both sides. It's the early season heat and it's the late season. Is it going to rain? Did it rain? Do we have sprout damage? And what is the extent of the sprout damage? And then it's interesting too, because our farmers are super knowledgeable and they're super aware and they're managing their land and they have for all, like for their whole lives potentially and potentially for um, the generations before them as well. So they know where the low spots are. They know where probably there's enough water in the ground to be growing good plump grain. So like selectively harvesting so that they can differentiate between what has to ultimately go to the feed market likely and what can be um, recovered and um, will be malt quality. And then also with the heat and the heat pressure, the increase in protein, like there's just a million things that are a real challenge um, in this scenario. But also to Hillary's point, um, there's so many efforts out there to be selecting for varieties of grain that are drought tolerant, that are um, like well attuned to dryland systems. So how deep do the roots roots go? How tall are the plants? Do they shade out other uh, shorter plants uh, that would be weeds? There's there's lots of ways that we can be mitigating it, and it's really cool the influence of um, especially university institutions that can be um, breeding for for those characteristics that can move us into the future because it would be yeah we would be blind we would be blindsided if we weren't preparing for the reality that it's not always going to interact uh, we're not always going to get the weather that we expected especially into the future it's definitely changing yeah hey um for I guess for Hillary, is there a hierarchy of of, of grain? Like for example, some grains going to go to animal feed. Some might go to bakers. Some might go to distilleries. Some might go to breweries. Do you want to try to outline that for me? What's the differences? Sure. So all of those different end products are going to have different specifications. So for us, all of our barley is meant to go to brewers or distillers. So we're looking for the same kind of specifications for, for those barleys or the same range of specifications. But um, we also, we grow a lot of wheat and a lot of our wheat goes just to general commodity chain, but we do also sell a few loads of wheat every year as kosher, which goes to a bakery in Brooklyn. Um, and they have a totally different protein requirement than a traditional flour mill would be looking for. So you really have to know what your end product is to, to both manage that crop for it um, and or to know which fields you can select to send to certain customers. So for us, the barley comes first. We harvest all the barley and save all the barley and that is going to go in the malt house. And then for um, our wheat, we're looking at the best fields that we can um, have a moderate protein content for for our variety of wheat to save for the malt house. And then we want some lower protein wheat to go um, to this one bakery. And then we have the rest of it that just goes for commodity. Um, but yeah, everybody is looking for a very specific end product. And you may or may not be able to grow that in your region. No, this is very interesting. Jesse, can we talk more about um, who's been working to develop these, you know, specifications and, you know, quality control in the industry? The folks that do that are barley breeders and malt quality labs. Um, and we have one of those actually right here in Bozeman, Montana, uh, the Montana State University Uh Barley, malt, and brewing quality lab. So they do it all from, from field to pint, basically. Testing and everything. Um, but yeah, they're working on developing uh, lines of different types of barley that are suitable for, you know, environments. Um, 
like ours here in Montana. And then there are other labs too in other parts of the country, like Oregon State University and um, Hartwick College has a malt quality testing lab. Um, you may be familiar too with Cornell's uh, barley variety they released um, in late 2020 called Excelsior Gold. Have you heard of that? Yeah, we, we did a show about that, yep. So, I mean, there's there's people at all these land-grant universities all over the country and at USDA uh, Ag Research Service Labs uh, working on, on developing barley that, you know, can be drought-resistant or that's uh, possibly resistant to disease like fusarium head blight, which is a big issue um, for, a lot, for a lot of barley growers. And um, it's just the work that, that it's a lot of that work is funded by both federal funding from the USCA um, and, you know, through private grants as well from, from uh, donors. And uh, so it's, uh, it's vital though, because it's really in the last several years helped us to develop regionally adapted barley varieties that are suitable for, you know, places like New York, or we have one that just was released this past year that's adapted specifically for, for Montana. Um, so it, it, those varieties that are developed, you know, to grow in that region are going to do better than another variety that someone's brought in from outside. Um, and so that's what, and that's what we're trying to do is match the, the crop, match the plant to the environment. So it has the best, you know, um, you know possible chance of growing and in, in, in bringing us a successful crop. Yeah. Well, hey, this has been a great introduction. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking to some of the leaders of, of, the, of the Craft Malters Guild. Um, one thing I want to know uh, is how do we define what this movement is? I know you guys are the Craft Malters Guild. and Hillary was talking about small malt. Jesse, um, how, how much work has it taken to define what, what – what you guys are doing and to stand out from, you know, what malt was 20 years ago. Sure. So when the guild was formed, uh, one of the things that was really important from the get-go was defining what craft malt is. Um, that way, you know, we can clearly articulate how we are different from the larger scale malt producers. And the way that we decided that, that that we stood out was that we are small, local, and independent. And so when I say small, I mean a, a, a craft malster is producing around five and a half to 10,000, or sorry, five and a half to 11,000 U.S. tons a year. They're local, so they're going to be sourcing at least 50% of the grains um, that they're using for malt uh, within a 500 mile radius of their business. So they're, you know, they're trying to keep their carbon footprint small. They're not chucking grain in from thousands of miles away. Um, and they're independent, which means they are independently owned by at least a 76% majority or more. So that's kind of how we define craft malt. And I think that, you know, that's, it's kind of, it's, it's 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 uh it's it's what puts us apart, I guess. Yeah, from those those three p- 
pillars. Yeah. Well, I know like in, in jumping, talking about how local malt can help define or improve um, the local beer scene. I know that um, with Valley Malt in Massachusetts, uh, she gets Danko, Danko Rye from uh, Tor Eschner out in New York. And I know that uh, Exhibit A and maybe Wormtown in Massachusetts do make a Danko Rye, uh, usually IPA. Um, can you each tell me an example of, of, a, of a beer that you know that's kind of iconic um, that you think the flavor depends on that malt? Who wants to start? Jesse, you want to start? Yeah, I would say, you know, one that comes to mind and it's not brewed with craft malt, but it's a beer that I remember immediately when I first moved to Montana, I discovered this beer from Blackfoot River Brewing Company in Helena that was just called their single malt IPA. And the it the malt bill was 100% Maris Otter. And it had this distinct flavor um, that was just that was, you knew that was a Blackfoot single malt IPA. Um, and, you know, Maris Otter obviously is a malt that has quite the reputation with the brewing community. Brewers love it. It's it's one of the best malts out there probably for brewing, but um, it's really hard to replicate here in the U.S. So that was one that just always stood out to me. Yeah. Is, is there a program where, I know, I know like, it seems like earlier on people and there's you figured out how to showcase hops and and hops are definitely you know you a lot of people can name the, the newest hop variety um is, is there anyone who's doing like s- single malt or spotlighting malt in their beers or is that is that a program that's being talked about as a way to educate consumers i think there have been a couple of brewers who have taken on that challenge i know a couple of years ago um burial down in Asheville was doing a series of of loggers that they were doing in collaboration with brewers and featuring single malt featuring malts from those different the different regions that they were collaborating with and I think that those projects are are always very interesting to to taste um I know Jesse brought up Maris Otter and I think one of the things that's so interesting about that is that so many brewers know Maris Otter and that's a barley variety. So I don't think that we've gotten to that point yet where these new barley varieties that are in the pipeline or that are being developed by universities now um, in different regions around our country are they're, they're not iconic yet, but we can certainly hope that in the future, people might look to a specific malt house or a specific barley variety and be able to pull that out, um, pull that out of a beer and, and, or say like, oh yeah, I've tasted those beers from these four different people that all use that malt. And, you know, I can find that unifying flavor thread. I, I think... I think what happened, you know, before craft malt came around, people didn't really think about barley varieties or, or well, brewers didn't think about bar- barley varieties because they had, you know, because of prohibition in our country, it really kind of created this this strange his- gap in our history of, you know, where the, there wasn't any beer and there wasn't anyone malting. And then when it started back up again after prohibition was lifted, it all just kind of eventually went to these large scale corporate brewers, you know, and they were vertically integrated. And so when craft brewers popped up in the eighties and nineties, there just wasn't that knowledge within the community, you know, anymore. It was kind of lost. Um, Brewers before prohibition would have probably known what variety of barley they were getting. I, I, I feel like they would have. Um, and they were malt. A lot of brewers were even malting their own barley before prohibition, and so we're having to kind of like re-educate the brewing community at this point on on what the the agricultural side of beer looks like, and um, and and what those varieties you know lend to beer. Um, I, I always like to look at coffee because you know coffee's done this great job of of talking about 
their origin story and the varieties of coffee that they're used and where the coffee's grown. And, you know, they have this whole lexicon of flavor and stuff similar to what we've been working on developing in the, in the uh, craft malt industry, but they, um, people associate types of coffee with the places it's grown. People don't think about barley that way yet. Um, or malts or beer. So it, we, we have a long ways to go to get there. Well, I think that's, that's some of why having the hot steep method is so important. And Jesse, you brought that up before, or maybe it was mm-hmm. Heather, that before there wasn't this unified method for people to think about malt flavor. People kind of just would grab a handful and chew it and say, yeah, I think that we can use it at this percentage or, or whatever. But now if you use the hot steep method to really taste and evaluate, and we use this standard lexicon that's being developed by people like Lindsay Barr to, to speak about malt, then we can all get our flavor palettes aligned so that we can think about what we're all speaking the same language when we're talking about malt. And I think that hops, hops have been doing that for a little while. And, um, malt has now been doing it for a little while and we're starting to, to get somewhere where we can all think in a unified way about what malt tastes like and what the differences are that are perceived between two malt houses with the same barley variety or two barley varieties through the same malt house and how that flavor translates from the, the barley to the malt to the beer. Those are really good points. And I just want to say, it's funny, about eight years ago, I remember being at events and some, some of the earlier uh, maltsters I'd meet would literally have the dry malt out to sample. And mostly they were focusing on the color. It seemed to be that that was what they wanted to showcase, that, you know, you had gradations going from pale to dark and you, you could taste it and crunch on it. But um, how revolutionary, so, so the hot steep method was, was revolutionary in some way, wasn't it? I think so, because I, I think previously people would do what, whatever worked for them sensory wise in their own brewery or in their own malt house. But when you come up with a stand, with a protocol, then you can start comparing apples to apples. Whereas before, if you were just saying, you know, um, well, I make this malt tea or I taste wort or whatever your method was, it wasn't comparable. But hot steep was proven to be sensitive and reproducible for people. And so it's really um, a great way to evaluate malt flavor. And it's very consistent for people um, across different malt houses or different um, sensory panels. Hillary, can you just describe us exactly what hot steep is? Yeah, so it it is a malt it is a malt tea process. Um, it's an ASBC method that um, that's the American Society of Brewing Chemists that they um, developed, and you basically are making a very low Plato wort, um, and it's something that you can do in your own kitchen on your own countertop um, with thermoses and a small amount of malt, um, and and a, and a short steep time, and then a filtration. So you're getting. Um, a lot of the flavor of the malt without that huge sugar impact that you would get if you were making a full strength wort and trying to taste it that way. That's, that's pretty great. Um, wow. I want to go back just talking about the guild, Jesse, and get, get Keather into what what would you want to ask Keather, Jesse? Cause I know, you know, everybody, like I said, uh, you know, you ran the, the craft malt conference, uh, you turned me on to like Hannah Turner at Montana State. Um, mm-hmm. What's a good question for Keller? Hmm. I guess. Uh, I guess you know, being someone who's very new to the industry, I, I, I'd uh, be interested just to hear her perspective on on you know what she thought of it initially and how her perspective may have changed over the last couple years since she's been working in in the industry. Yeah. Thanks, Jesse. That's a good question. Um, I got into the industry out of interest in agriculture and interest in grain and the um, 
the broader impacts on the food system. Uh, and so it's been really interesting to be able to stay centralized in a, like a clear aspect of the food system. So beer and spirits are a huge, uh, is, it takes up a huge part of what we consume as people every day. And so everything from your very fine spirits that are uh, produced from all malt all the way to uh, your like perfectly delicious Miller High Life, it's, um, it's something that impacts us every day. And so it's been interesting to see to scale up from a history. My background is in small scale agriculture. So to scale up uh, into mid to larger scale agriculture to combat the commodity market to, um, or not combat, but to act as competition to the commodity market to communicate with brewers and distillers, the distillers, the value of craft uh, malt of working with a scale of farm and then also working with a scale of maltster that can't necessarily with every batch hit the spec that you would expect from a larger like a commodity malt house because they're blending across so many tons we're blending across a very small number of tons in many instances so there's more variation but it also uh, gives our brewers and distillers the opportunity to work with the season's grain or the season's malting. Um, so it's been to to come into this just a couple years ago and like really sink my teeth into grain has been um, an eye opener about what is possible as we consider more um more thoughtful food systems that includes beer and spirits. Grain was left out of the conversation for a really long time. Um, so now in the past, um, as we've talked about the past like 10 to 15 years, um, we've really started to consider what it means to be producing on the craft scale, why it's different than commodity. Um, and there's still so much opportunity to engage stakeholders um like the whole the whole spectrum of stakeholders the farmers the maltsters the brewers distillers the consumers to engage that whole spectrum to really talk about the value of grain grown uh the value of grain grown in particular systems or the value of um, grain selected for certain environments or the way that maltsters can manipulate and um, coax different things out of out of grain it's it's um it's ever expansive and it's really it's been um it's a treat to to get to interact with all of those uh elements of the supply chain wow this is really a great show uh, i just want to bring bring it back again to the guild um so Jesse, when we put the show together, I think you wanted to address a couple, a couple initiatives that, that the Guild is doing. You had a re, you have really great posts about w women who kind of led the way with the Craft Malt Guild, uh, including Andrea Stanley. And um, what, what what roles do, do the board have? Hillary, are you on the board right now? Yes, Hillary's Hillary's our vice president. Yes, I am. Um, I've been on the board of directors. I'm in my second term now, um, my second. So I guess maybe four years I've been on the board of directors, um, which was a slightly shorter time than I've been a member of the guild. So, cause we've been malting about six years. Um, so I, I have always found that, you know, digging in and, and being involved in the, the leadership of your association um, is really rewarding and also um, really important to make sure that your voice is heard within your own your own association and that's not just having to do with craft malts having to do with you know any any community that you're a part of yeah that's great and jesse anything else you want to say to wrap it up i know you have um a new task force, diversity, equity, and inclusivity task force. Yeah, we uh, just kicked that off in May. Um, you know, 
as we all know, there's been lots of, of social issues come to light over the last year um, and a half. And, and those things are important to address, um, you know, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, uh, sexism, misogyny, all those things, they need to be addressed. And um, our diversity, equity and inclusivity task force is, you know, we've, we're trying to set up a code of conduct for our organization. We are working towards creating um, diversity, equity, and inclusivity resources for our members uh, to help them be more equitable uh, in their hiring practices and, you know, employ more diverse individuals in the workforce, in the craft mold industry. Um, and we're also looking at ways uh, to just, you know, connect with, with folks in other communities and offer scholarships uh, to, uh, you know, those communities that aren't, aren't fully represented in our uh, greater industry yet. So that is what we're working on. And um, we also have just a lot of great education and, and event initiatives uh, in the works too uh, that will also be incorporating those DEI principles into so everyone, thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to Hillary, Jesse, and Cather. A uh, big thank you to our engineer, Armin Spengen, and assistant producer, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.